Welcome to the Truth Simply Put, the teaching broadcast vehicle of the Basilea Commission. On today's teaching by Alexander Victor, God's Word, rightly divided in the light of Christ, who is the central theme of the entire scriptures, will come with simplicity, precision, clarity, and power to instruct, admonish, edify, and build you up into the full measure of the stature of Christ. Now, let's dive straight in. We're dealing with Understanding this Gospel Series 2. Today we're part 3. We left off somewhere last week talking about how only the second Adam or only an Adam can restart a colony of heaven on earth. And don't forget the intention of earth all along was that it become heaven here. You remember that? The whole idea of earth was that earth become a reflection or mirror of heaven. We saw in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, Jesus teaching them to pray. First thing he said was that kingdom come. And what he meant by that was that the will of God be done on earth as it was in heaven. Or as it is in heaven. In other words, let's bring on the earth what already exists. First request in the prayer of Jesus in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 was that kingdom come that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I said, the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven was the kingdom coming. Following me now? The kingdom come equals to that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make sense? So the idea was that man will colonize the earth of God or God colonizing the earth through man such that earth becomes not a replica of, if you like, or better still, a representation, a direct representation of heaven. Make sense? Heaven in which existed only sons. Because in heaven, that location, you have celestial beings. You have the four living creatures, you have the 24 elders, you have the multiple and all that going on. But this heaven on earth was supposed to consist exclusively of sons. So when he creates Eden and he puts man there, he puts man by himself and gives that man dominion over everything else except man. Right? Because there's nowhere that God gave man authority over another man. Now we've talked about slaves and people have said, how can your God be, be a good God if the scripture talks about slaves honoring your masters? And of course, as you know, the slave colonial masters used those portions of scripture extensively. In fact, they had reverends who were slaves preaching, conducting services to slaves with emphasis on parts of the Bible that talked about slavery. Such that the reverends will actually tell the slaves in the plantation those days that if you disobeyed your master, there was a special part of hell reserved for you. They told them that if you disobeyed your master, not only would you die, you will go to a special place of hell reserved for slaves that rebelled against their masters. Because scriptures said expressly that slaves should honor their masters in all things. 
and in doing so please God. Now I've explained that in this house um, recently what that meant. It wasn't that scripture was endorsing slavery, but scripture was um, acknowledging the fact that there was the prevalence of slavery at that time. Does that make sense? And we see that highlighted properly in the narrative of Onesimus. In Paul's letter to Philemon, Philemon was a slave master, of course a wealthy man who owned slaves, including this one of note called Onesimus, who had run away from his master, and in running away had met and encountered Paul, and, and had gotten converted, and believed. And then Paul then writes Philemon, whom he knew, and says to him, so don't receive this guy now as a slave. Receive him as your brother and my brother. In fact, receive him as you would receive me. That doesn't sound like the language of somebody who endorses slavery. If he's writing to a slave owner and saying, this guy is born again now. Receive him as you receive me. So Paul wasn't sending Onesimus back as a slave as it were. Does that make sense? He was sending him back as a son. And this particular letter that Paul wrote to Philemon was important because he was in an era of slavery. It was an era of slavery. It follows that that portion of scripture is no longer relevant today. Slaves obey your masters. It's not what you can use and quote to your house girl. You are a witch. In Jesus' name. Because nothing makes a nanny less a human. Or less a son. So for those of you that treat people that walk for you as though they were less than you. It's actually, I've said it before in this church. It's actually very stupid for you to have a driver. Are you very stupid? My friend, look at you. Nonsense guy. And it's about to drive you to Abuja. You are still entrusting your life and your safety into the hands of a driver. You have just said is a non-entity. Nothing is good to come out of him. You know, go better for you. Eh? But you're, you're wanting the no go better for you to drive you to Abuja. You have a cook and you curse the life out of her. And you go to your bedroom and this cook is going to cook for you in the kitchen alone. What you are going to eat? You have mind. You haven't heard instances where people go back from the counter and spit in your pizza. Take leaves from, from a plant and mix in your soup. <laughs> oh yes. So that scripture that says, I said the Lord build a house. I said the Lord watch this. It's not a joke. So you can't treat someone less than you just because you feel like you're more privileged than them. That's not the spirit of the gospel. Amen? It's not the spirit of the gospel at all. Why have we said that? Because of all the things God gave man dominion over, man was not one of them. God did not give man dominion over man. God did not intend for a man to own a man. Men owned beasts and lands and properties. And conquered territories, but not owned other men. Yeah? Did we get that? The Bible did not start slavery. Go and read the history of civilization from way before Bible times. And by Bible times, I mean when the Bible started to be written. The 4,000 year period in which the Bible was written. The Dark Ages before that, the Byzantine period, the Ottoman period, you know, the medieval period. People have always conquered people. They didn't need the Bible to enslave other people. Does that make sense? They didn't need the Bible. The point I'm making is that there have been people conquering people, enslaving people before even the Bible began to be written. Even in English. Before there was an English language. 
Does that make sense? Before there was an English language. Before even the Bible was written in Aramaic, the original Hebrew language in which Genesis to Revelation were written, there were already people lording it over people. The Bible didn't introduce slavery. I don't know why I'm saying this, but for somebody to get understanding. In Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham and says, come out of your father's house, you know, and come to land, I will show you. Abraham didn't have a son, right? Eventually, when they start having conversations, and then Abraham starts to ask God, um, you have not said what you will give to me, seeing I go childless. It, it, I've told you here in this house, and I'm teaching, uh, when I was teaching, that Abraham never asked God for a child. Some of you were shocked to hear that. Abraham never prayed for a child. Abraham asked God, God would give him, seeing as he did not have a child. In other words, Abraham had resigned himself to the fact that he wasn't going to have children, which was understandable for a man his age. So his, his question was, what would you give me to compensate me for not having children? It was God of his own accord that promised him that he will have a child, and for emphasis, by Sarah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, at, that, at the time that that conversation is going on, you, hear, you then hear Abraham ask God, says, what would you give me since I don't have a child? And, this is where I'm going, the heir of my property, the person that stands in line to inherit my wealth, is Eleazar of Damascus, my servant or my slave. So at the time God just called Abraham out of paganism, you see their slavery because you see Abraham having a slave in the person of Eleazar before even God began to deal with him according to faith. So the Bible did not institute slavery or human subservience. God gave man dominion over everything, but did not give man dominion over man. That's very important. So every perversion you see in the earth, especially that demonic, misogynistic attitude in black folks, particularly, that makes every man feel like every woman belongs to him. Is the depth of devilish nonsense. Such a person is very disturbed. You feel like every woman is, is she's yours. So you, you don't even need to woo her. You can take her by force whether she likes it or not. That's what makes a man be complimenting a lady and the moment she goes past or appears to be going past without responding, he instantly switches to insulting the same thing that he hoped to get attention of by complimenting. And if she was foolish enough to fall for the compliment, he will harvest what he needs and he's gone. Because he wasn't interested. It just feels like everyone is there for the conquering or for the taking. It's a perverse fallen spirit. That's what breeds harassment. Sexual harassment. That's what breeds rape. Nobody who rapes is normal. No, no, no. You need both Jesus and help. I'm serious. After you receive Jesus, you need to sit in therapy and get help. I'm serious. Because being born again doesn't fix some things. You need to renew your mind. Some of you need to change the way you see females. Change the way you see males. Change the way you see children. Change the way you see money. You have the spirit of God in you, but it hasn't changed your mindset until. Amen. So your kingdom come on earth. It will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And only a man from God can regain what a man from God lost. Remember that? So, what then is the agenda of the second Adam? To restore what the first Adam lost. Right? 
what did the first Adam lose? The kingdom, right? The mandate of dominion he had because he came from the stem of dominion. The access and the privileges he enjoyed by being created in the image of God, which we have established several times in scripture, is Christ. Right? There's no dispute about that anymore. Christ is the image of God. Right? He, he also is the righteousness of God. For lack of a better word and for absence of time to dwell on it any further, we can say simply that Christ is the everything of God. Because in him, Paul says in Colossians, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So everything God is, is in Christ. Right? If God is holy, is in Christ. If God is righteous, is in Christ. If God is a healer, is in Christ. If God is love, is in Christ. Everything God is, he is in Christ. So Christ is the epitomization of everything that God is. If this Christ is the image of God and man was created in the image of God, it means that when God created man, God created man as capable of everything Christ is capable of. Are you here? So if God was righteous in Christ and God consulted the image which is Christ to make man, it means by default man arrived righteous. Does that make sense? If God is holy and the holiness of God is as captured in Christ and God created man in the image of Christ, it means that at the point man was created, man arrived how? Holy. Man did nothing to be holy. If God is love and that love is captured and showed in Christ and God created man in the image of God, which is Christ, it means that man arrived loaded with the capacity to love just as God who in Christ is love. You must understand. That's why the entire scriptures are the message of God in Christ. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Are you sure? Yes, sir. So we can single out the things that man lost when man fell, but all of it is summed up in the fact that we lost everything that God is in Christ. And what is the one word that captures all of that? The kingdom. Because it is a system of God. It's how God deals. Does that make sense? It's what everything about God's agenda culminates into the kingdom. The kingdom, let me put it this way. The kingdom of God is the end result of everything God is and does. Okay? The kingdom of God is the end result of everything God is and does. So everything God is, everything God does, he is and does for the sake of the kingdom. Does that make sense? The kingdom of God is the end result of everything God is and everything that God does. The kingdom of God is at, this, at the end, is his end result, is at the center, is the crux, is the fulcrum of everything God is and everything God does. Because he's a kingdom person. He's driven by the kingdom. Are we here? And so Adam comes, second Adam comes to restore that kingdom on the earth. Because we lost it on the earth. There was no drama in heaven when man fell. Worship didn't stop in heaven. Angels didn't stop singing. You know what I mean? Stuff didn't go crazy. You know? I mean, at the very worst, you'd have probably heard a gasp. But nothing stopped operating in heaven when man fell. 
I mean, he can't be sat on a throne and everything around his throne is messed up because something happened downstairs. Do you get the analogy? So heaven was all right. Heaven has always been all right. So I'm sorry for all of you. Heaven will not rest till I'm blessed people. See, heaven is all right. The whole idea of heaven is rest. The whole idea of heaven is that they are all right. Do you understand? They are fine. As you know, prayer, you pray. Let's choke heaven with incense. By the time God cannot breathe anymore. Please, who knows what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 I'm serious. In Luke and the shepherds were out watching the flock by night and the angels appeared to them. What did they say? Glory to God. Where? Christ. And then, thank you, sir. It didn't say peace. He said, and on earth, peace and goodwill to all men. Glory to God in the highest. This is going according to God's plan. I explained to you what glory is. Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace and goodwill has come to men. Because where was without peace? Earth. In men. So where did peace arrive? From where? From the highest. On earth, peace to men. Because it's the earth that was in turmoil. Not heaven. Amen? Okay, can we continue? So the kingdom restored, that's the message and the agenda of the second, who thankfully is the last, Adam. That kingdom restored. The kingdom restored where? On earth. So why did we start preaching about people making heaven? It baffles me. Let's make it heaven, heaven is a race. Who started that nonsense? What did man lose? Heaven or earth? Jesus came to restore the kingdom. The kingdom has been talked about in Revelation. Where is the location of that kingdom? Heaven or earth? So why did heaven become the focus? If not as a distraction. If not as a distraction. I came from heaven. Born again means born from above. And the day I will teach that in full, I will show you. Born again means born from above. So he who was born of God, and because you see, those are two different things that we have confused. Born of God and born again. Because the new creation is born of God. The new creation is born of... Oh, Alexander Victor. Is it okay? Just spoiler alerts right here and there. The new creation is born of God, right? Okay. So, who, who was a bona fide bad boy or bad girl before they got born again? Here, put your hand up. I was born in church. I did some nonsense, but I was born in church. So I was generally a good boy who experimented here and then because I was too good and I felt like I didn't know what life was. I was born in church, literally, I grew up in church. So our badness was deliberate and sponsored. Yeah. Let's, see. Let's see what's going on. 
But is there any any really serious bad boy or bad girl before you got born again? Please put your hand up. I want to see. Um, a couple of hands. You know you were bad, like hopeless. A hopeless case. An empty space. If not for grace. Okay, so basically there was once upon a time in your life where you were not a Christian. Yeah, is there anybody else like that? Once upon a time you were not a Christian. So you now got born again, right? Born again. You were bad. You now got converted. Got born again. Please, where's your new body? You still look exactly the way you looked before you got born again. So born of God and born again. I do the same thing. Jesus was born of God. That's why he arrived sinless. There was no human seed in his DNA. And as born of God as he was, how did he come? As son of man in the body of flesh. When it was time to go, because he's the firstborn from the dead and the first fruit of those that will rise from the dead, he dropped this body and was regenerated into an immortal, glorious body. Hence, he's called the firstborn born. Firstborn from the dead, not firstborn from birth. Think about it. Firstborn from the dead. Emphasis is on his birth at his death. Not firstborn from the dead as per the first one to be born sinless from God without the corruption of the previous Adam. He wasn't firstborn from Mary's womb. Even if the Holy Spirit impregnated her. He wasn't called firstborn until he died. And then rose different to how he died. So he's now referred to as the first one to be born from the dead. And when he rose from the dead or when he was born from the dead, he now received a body he could not have received otherwise. So we all are born of God until. Because what we call born again, we must die to enter it. So that we too can now become second bonds from the dead. That's when salvation is complete. And then you can now stand and beat your chest and say, now, I am born again. Are you in class? <laughs> Don't be in a hurry to read scriptures. First born from the dead. First fruit of the dead. And so Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, each in his own season. 1 Corinthians 15 repeats the same thing. Christ first. Each to his own. Then us. There's no second, third, fourth, sixth, twentieth, one millionth born. It's Christ first. Then us. As one. So ma, one whole, one body. No body will be translated before another. The church can fight it all they like. We are all here. Oh man, I'm trying to teach. Is anybody getting this? So the first Adam lost. <laughs> the kingdom, which is the epitomization of everything God is after. Are you following me now? 
everything that God does, he does with kingdom in mind. Make sense? And think of your father as being kingdom driven like that. Such that no mess could stop the kingdom being advanced. Not even the mess of your sin. So by whatever means necessary, required to regain this kingdom we lost at whatever cost, to the point of me becoming a man in the form of my son, whatever it takes, we're going to pay sin, we're going to whatever, let's do it. Get the kingdom back. Get the kingdom back. So he said, mighty man in battle, what, what, what battle is, see, he's disarmed them and made an open show of them and spoiled them and gotten the victory and didn't even keep it, gave it to you. He wasn't even interested in the credit. Who has the victory that Jesus won? Not Jesus. He doesn't need it. He left without it. Credited it to our account. And calls us more than conquerors. Kingdom. Miss that, miss everything else. That's why we've said from series one, the end of the gospel is the coming of the kingdom. Do you understand that? The end of the gospel is the coming of the kingdom. So, he came to restore the kingdom that was lost. The kingdom of God on the earth. Right? To restore that, he must deal with two issues that arose from the fall of the first Adam that have now cut off our source. What are those two issues? Sin and death. In series one, I mentioned something that I said was a minefield or a treasure trove that only one or two people found and picked on. I explained to them. We said that man, I used the word lost six things when he failed. When he failed. But then as I enumerated the six things, I changed the word from lost to tampered with. What does it mean to tamper with? To mess the normal flow of something. To disrupt something. Not as it were, to lose it completely. Does that make sense? You can tamper with something. You can mess with something. Doesn't mean the thing is no longer there. He tampered with his seed, right? We said that. Tampered with his supply. Tampered with his immunity tempered with his immortality because <laughs> like I said last week or the week before if that had not happened man was already in line to live forever right he tampered with tampered with tampered with his citizenship not lost as in the case of complete absolute loss when we say loss let's look at it contextually Right? You see, lost. Doesn't mean that you forwent. Doesn't mean that you forwent your entire citizenship. You just messed it up. Does that make sense? Lost in the sense of tampered with or abdicated. Not lost in the sense that any of these things were taken from you. Because if you look at it quite honestly, God didn't take anything from man. You know, look at, look at it pragmatically man just gave up stuff 
You were created in God's image. And somebody tells you, you'll be like God. And you're like, I want to be like God. That was demotion because you were as God. So man gave up what was his. In the same way that you, I've said in this house, I think in this series too, that you can't say Jacob stole Esau's birthright. Somebody says, what uses a birthright to me? Give me porridge. Take the birthright. And then you're angry and say, Jacob is a supplanter. What did he supplant? You gave it away. Willingly. So Esau's birthright was not stolen. They had a legal transaction. He offered to sell it for little next to nothing. Somebody offered, who had more foresight, offered to buy it. Legal transaction. Somebody had foresight. A day will come when this birthright will be, might be worth something. Because it wasn't as though Jacob even knew the implications of having the birthright. It might be worth something. So I can afford to be hungry today in order to invest in something that might turn out to be worth something. So deal? He says like, yeah, 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 deal already. Where do I sign? Give me the food. Food that is not bees kitchen that cook. Anyhow, anyhow, porridge. And you now come and say, Jacob stole his birthright. How? See your signature here. So man didn't have anything stolen from him. Like I said, man gave it away. And he gave it away, he tampered with stuff that was his. Right? And this tampering, this mess, removed one divine phenomenon. I mentioned this in series one. Righteousness. Replaced it with a newly created phenomenon. Sin. Sin introduces its own side effect. Death. Death in the place of what? Everlasting life. Or eternal life. Or immortality. Make sense? So really man's fall was the reversal of the natural order of the kingdom of God. Natural order. Heaven is in place. Earth has been planted as a seed. Man has been put to till it and have dominion over it. As man tills and has dominion over it, it expands. As it expands, is heaven expanding on the earth after the order of heaven? No death, no sin, no sickness, no, no mortality. But man on earth can live immortal and live everlasting and live of the heaven class on earth. Does that make sense? That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the will of God was not supposed to be less on earth than it was in heaven. If they lived immortally in heaven, the plan was for us to live immortally on earth. Does that make sense? If they live without stress and without distraction and without any chaos in heaven, the idea was that we lived just as heaven lived on earth. That's why we were made of the earth. Man was made from the earth. Or from the dust of the earth. Because he was made for the earth. Heaven was then breathed into the man that was made from the earth. But what material were you made of? The earth. And then heaven was dispatched into you. That's why when a man dies, his soul returns to God, his maker. His body 
goes to the earth. Are you here now? So sin brings death. Death, the absence of or determination of life. Ezekiel 18. 18, 19 through to 29. And yet you say, why shall the son not bear the guilt of his father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Listen, the biggest benefit a son of God has is that he is in Christ. If God were dealing with you, you are dead. And then from the deadness that you are dead, you will be dead again. You see how a dead man can be dying I wrote something. I said, thank God for grace. Thank God for grace that covers the sin of those of you who sin by insulting grace has not been enough to have dealt with the problem of sin. Thank God for grace that covers the sin of those of you who sin by insulting grace. Because to insult grace is to sin. Thank God for grace that covers the sin of those of you who sin by insulting grace has not been enough to have dealt with the problem of sin. Word play, right? Because see, it's fine with me that God doesn't know me. I'm not trying to make God know me. Who am I? If he knows me, you have to deal with me as me. And me, in my own dealings with me, I know how I'm faring. Yes, sir. <laughs> how much more if God were to deal with me? So nothing gives me more joy than to know that God is dealing with me in Christ. God knows Christ, reckons with Christ, I am in Christ, that's fine with me. Because therein lies my safety, sir. Let God deal with the person he knows. If God needs righteousness, let the person that can deliver righteousness give it to him. God needs holiness. The person that can be holy, please stand in front and be holy. God is looking for somebody to be pleased in and he already announced by himself, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So all of God's pleasure is in this guy. Please, when God is trying to find somebody to please him, Jesus, uh, come, please. Stand here. Because me, I will not please him. I have no righteousness for him. I have no holiness for him. In me dwelleth nothing good. But you see this miracle that I stepped into Christ? The beauty of grace. So God is not demanding anything of me that Jesus isn't supplying to him on my behalf. 
God is not demanding anything of me that Jesus isn't supplying to him on my behalf. Learn these equations. Josh said they are the workings of our salvation. These equations. <laughs> Learn them. Learn them. Oh. God is not demanding anything of me that Jesus isn't supplying to him on my behalf. So I am not under any pressure to impress the Father. I just come inside. See, me, I'm not under the canopy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I've come again. <laughs> How can I who is hidden, hidden with Christ in God be under the canopy? That's not a very good place to be, actually. No, under the canopy is for cars. Ma- Ma- material things. <laughs> you stay on that canopy briefly. That is a briefly. Go for a small event, finish briefly, and then you go back. You don't even in the natural, you don't live on that canopy. Not carry me my whole salvation. Put me not even my key. Canopy. I'm in Christ who is in God. That's enough for me. Because if God will not deny Jesus a thing, and I'm in Christ, I'm, I'm supplied. So don't, don't give it to me, just, just give it to Jesus. Let's see if all of us will not eat what you gave me. <laughs> you can't say no to Jesus, right? He pleased you, so you supply him. Supply him. If Jesus is chopping, I chop. End of story. See, this thing is actually very simple, sir. There's nothing complicated about the gospel. That's why I've always said God has only ever dealt with what? Two men. Religion is very evil. So if you want to enjoy direct access to God, God should reckon with you. No, he's only reckoning with us as in Christ. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, we're sitting in Ezekiel 18, right? 21 now. Keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right. He shall surely live and he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn away from his ways and leave? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he leave? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed, because of them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? (laughs) When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, 
It is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Think of Genesis 3. Think of Adam and the fall here. That's the scenario playing out here. Okay. 27. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. 28. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Because the soul that sins shall die. If you turn away from iniquity and does not continue in it and dies in it, then he dies. So, so death is the natural product of sin. Does that make sense? You don't have to tell a sinner to die. <laughs> the wages of sin is death. It's just cause and effect. Make sense? That's all that sin eh? should die. Ezekiel 18, 20, all the way down. If you sin, turn away from what you were told to turn away from. What's the result? Death. The wages of sin is death. Paul echoes that in Romans 6. Right? So these two things corrupt man when man fell and lost the kingdom. Tampered with the kingdom. And that affects all of us. Because then that Adam starts to give birth. Yes? He starts to give birth. There's no way the fallen Adam would have given birth to a righteous child. No way. Everybody Adam gives birth to must of a necessity be like him. The doctrine of original or the doctrine of inherited sin. And it's, there's nothing unfair about it. God is just. There's nothing unfair about it. Because people don't understand, we are claiming, we don't understand that it is from the justice of God that we were justified. It's not from the mercy of God. Someday I'll teach you the difference and the correlation between grace and mercy. They're not the same. It's the believer that enjoys mercy. We are saved by grace. We're not saved by mercy. Because mercy will mean that someday the enemy can get up and accuse God and say, it's not because you broke the rules. It's not because you flouted the rules that this person can even have audacity to make noise. If you had not compromised your standard, would he have been saved? So God ensures that he doesn't compromise on his justice when he decides to bring you justification. And so grace takes in. Grace is somebody standing for you to give the pay the price and the propitiation for everything that you deserve to pay. And then when he finishes that, the results and the benefits are credited to you. Does that make sense? So grace therefore comes along with mercy. So now God is favorable towards you. God is favorably disposed towards you. God is mindful of you. God has a soft spot for you. That's mercy on account of grace. They're not the same. They're not saved by mercy. You enjoy mercy because you are saved. 
<laughs> Saved by grace. So that's why it's believers that come and find mercy. Boldly. Because now you're favorably disposed towards me. I mess up, but you ain't going to judge me. You love me. As God be merciful to us because now we are beneficiaries of His grace. So, no, God is, God is, God is, God is very fair, very just. His justice necessitated your justification. It had to be a legal transaction. So, if you sin, you die. Nobody has to be condemned. Does that make sense? The soul that sins, that soul shall die. So, death is the natural consequence of sin. And so, everybody that is born is born with that nature. So sometimes in trying to overtly, excessively explain the character of God, we remove him from the, the, the scenario of a corrupted prototype, protos, first, passing down the thing to everybody else. And I've told you guys over and over that even New Testament, New Creation teachers are now teaching that nobody is a sinner because of Adam. And it's a very, very wicked thing to say because if nobody's a sinner because of Adam, nobody's righteous because of Jesus. Oh, people, 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 uh, how do they say it? People became sinners because they rejected the gospel. In who? In themselves or in Adam? So you're telling me that Adam was corrupted and people could come after Adam and stay righteous. So people, 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 it's not Adam's sin. It's people's sin, their own sin is upon themselves. It's in our righteousness, sir. It's upon ourselves. There's no point in believing what Jesus did. Jesus believed for himself. So now we have to walk for ourselves. And so you now see New Testament theology sounding like religion. Be careful of people who fall over themselves to try and explain God. Allow him to explain himself. I've heard all kinds of nonsense in my day. Called the Lord the covenant of men, given by angels. Where was God? And angels were getting up and giving law for sons to live by. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Keep going. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Did you see that? To all and on all who believe. When man fell, he did not fall from grace. He fell in grace. What broke his fall? Grace. What covered him? Grace. What located him when he hid himself? Grace. What started the process to restore him? Grace. Man did not fall out of grace because he saved. That is what grace is there for. That's what grace is there for. To catch you. Because where sin abounds, Romans 5.20, grace abounds much more. So grace is never threatened by sin. Grace is sin's worst nightmare. 
All have sinned. How did all sin? In the one who sinned. Does that make sense? In the one who sinned. That's what he continues to argue in chapter 4 that climaxes in chapter 5 of Romans. The sin of all through the sin of the one and the justification of those who believe from the obedience of the one. Make sense? So Jesus comes to restore us to what Adam lost. And like I said to you last week, what did he come to deal with? Sin. But what is the agenda? The kingdom. Not sin. To restore the kingdom, we must deal with what cost man to lose the kingdom in the first place. But our agenda is to restore the kingdom. So Jesus came preaching, not sin. Sin has never been the message. Sin is never the message. 19 ways to know you are in sin. 39 steps to avoid sin. 14 keys to live a sin-free lifestyle. You hear it on Sunday, by Tuesday you're broken all. I promise you. By the following Sunday, you'll come to me with 98 ways that the 38 keys don't work. Tell your neighbor, sin has never been the message. Yeah. Never. Never been the message. It's never been the message. God is not intimidated by sin. He's coming to restore what man lost that he gave to man. And what caused him to lose it? Sin, which brought about death. So we must deal with these two things to get back to where we were before things went wrong. So Jesus comes to deal with sin, but the focus, the focus of his message was on the result of his work. So Jesus comes, if you look at the flow of the ministry of Jesus, he comes to, he always treated sin like it didn't matter. He never amplified sin. Because by his very existence, sin had already been dealt a bad blow. So, do you understand? So he never treated sin as an issue. Or he came to deal with the sin problem, granted. But he never majored on it as his message. Instead, he focused on the result of dealing with sin. Man lost the kingdom by disobedience. Disobedience triggered the nature of sin. Sin naturally brought about death. Death tampering with our immortality, short-circuiting our righteousness, and truncating the flow of the kingdom of God. Right? What are the two culprits? Sin and resultantly death. So, Jesus comes to restore the kingdom that was lost. To restore the kingdom that was lost, he must deal with what caused man to lose it. What caused man to lose it? Sin. Jesus comes to deal with the sin problem, but because he is our righteousness and our propitiation for sin, our penalty, our sacrifice, our payment for sin, he treats sin like it didn't matter because he knew that by the time he was done, sin will no longer matter. So just like everything else he did as son of man, you see, there are things that Jesus is doing as physical son of man that mirrored his divinity. Anyway you look at it. If you look at his divinity as coming from pre-existence, like the word 
was in the beginning before the word became flesh. For people that argue that Jesus is a human being, he's a man that God fathered. So Jesus is not God. Praise God for your life. But after he died, he became Lord. And he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you want to call him an exalted man who is now in the God class. Be my guest. But how do you explain Paul saying in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And there is no way a son can be absolute co-equal with his father. But he did not consider it robbery. You know, he was not Jesus blaspheming to say, I and my father are one. Same substance. And I'm not talking about is Jesus God today. That one is cute. We are going to get there. I'm not in a hurry. I don't teach under pressure. Uh, teach systematic. We will get there. Ask the question and answer it. Because it's answered already. So, until we answer it. <laughs> anyway. So, anyhow you look at Jesus. <laughs> whether you look at him as pre-incarnate son of God. Right? As distinctively seen through scriptures between an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord. And you see multiple references to uh, the New Testament talks about do not worship uh, me, worship Jesus. He's not God, worship Jesus. And people came and lay at his feet and worshipped him. And he took the worship. Sin needed to be exceedingly sinful to trigger the price that had already been paid. Jesus coming, he, he, how did he say he came? He said he came in the volume of the books as has been written concerning him. He came to do the Father's will. So by Jesus' existence, sin was already dealt with. Even if he had not yet died on the cross. So he could issue checks that were guaranteed to not bounce. Does that make sense? Right behind on that check. Pay with or without ID. The bearer is hereby identified. I used to love those checks growing up. Because you know when you enter the bank, you have this clout. Back in the days when you used to take checks to the bank. You know, you take the check and you slam it in front and they look at you and they ask for ID. Then you tell them, turn the back of the check. Used to be, used to be so cool. Those days, you just turn the back of the check, you look at you and he wants, to, he wants to be nasty, but he doesn't have a right to be nasty anymore. Because he's been signed twice on the back and say, pay, pay the bearer. With or without ID, he or she has been hereby identified. You count the money, even if it's two million, you count and give it to me. So Jesus could issue those kind of bankers' checks because he knew that sin is, is pretty much taken care of. Are you here with me? So he didn't focus on sin because sin is sorted. Does that make sense? Sin is sorted. He focused on the effect. Which is the kingdom. Are you here? He comes to deal with the problem. But he focuses his message on the solution. He comes to deal with the problem. But he focuses his message on the solution. He focuses on the end game. Which is what? The kingdom. The coming kingdom. Are you here? Now it gets interesting. Because the people that he was dying for. People to whom he was restoring the kingdom did not even know they were sinners or that they needed saving. How much more to identify that Jesus was their savior? Are you here? 
John 1, 10 and 11. John 1, 10 and 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Hmm. Wow. Uh, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He was in the world, the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. So they didn't know they needed saving how much more that he was their savior. See Mark 6 and 5. Mark 6, 5. I'll go from verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Verse 5. Now, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So Jesus healed a few sick people, and it wasn't called a mighty work. Define this, if you like, as the failures of Jesus. When ministry was not working, he healed a few sick people. When we heal one sick person of headache, and we used to start healing ministry. People were healed and no mighty work was done. Why? Because the gospel of the kingdom wasn't preached. So no amount of miracles can amount to a mighty work. In the absence of the preaching, hearing, and receiving of the gospel of the kingdom. The word of his grace. He could, let's see how the TPT puts verse 5. He was unable to do any great miracle in Nazareth, except to heal a few sick people by laying his hands upon them. A great miracle here would not have been, oh, many people were sick and therefore were healed. No. Because the work he came to do was to declare the gospel of the kingdom. Remember that? So they didn't even know that he was the savior. They didn't know they needed saving. Even though they understood from the Old Testament that there was a Messiah that was coming. That's the funny thing about the Jews. Don't you realize that? They knew that they had lost a kingdom. They knew that they were expecting the kingdom to be restored. They knew that a Messiah will come to restore that kingdom. But that was all they knew. They understood wrongly, right? They thought the kingdom of God was immediately natural. They thought the kingdom of God was immediately natural. Matthew 21 and 9. See these guys, right? In verse, start from verse 1. I showed us this last week when I jumped ahead of myself. Remember? Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied. And this was a disruptor for a lot of people. <laughs> Never seen it before. You find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Lose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, 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 them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. It was prophesied though. Your king is coming to you lowly. Not in pomp and pageantry. Lowly. 
sitting on, go on, a donkey. A colt. The foal of a donkey. Keep going. It was there. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. Keep going. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. On them here would mean the clothes that were on the coal of the donkey. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, right? Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Verse 9. Then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest for this later. Crucify him. Crucify him. He was Barabbas. Kill him. Oh, so here was a donkey that needed its mother to calm it down when other kings show up in horses. Especially those Greeks who were in charge of Jerusalem at the time. I mean, I can easily assume that hardly will a Jew own a chariot in those days. It would have to be, if you saw a chariot coming with horses, it would have to be a Roman aristocrat or, 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 or military general or something. And so you'd expect Jesus to come riding on a white stallion, you know, baby donkey, because he came in peace, not for war. Remember that? So he didn't look like the emancipator, freedom fighter they were expecting. But he showed them that he was the one that was prophesied about. He showed them. And I don't understand the issue of the Jews. He showed, Genesis 49, he showed them. You know when blessings were being, um, or whatever you want to call them, blessings, let's use the word blessings for lack of a better phrase, were being meted out on the 12 sons of Jacob. Right? In 49, um, for lack of time, I'll just I'll skip, but it starts in verse 1. Genesis 49, 1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Please pay attention to that. Jacob said that I might tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Genesis 49. In the last days. Gather yourselves together. Let me tell you what shall befall you in the last days. So he was talking to 12 men about matters that did not have anything to do with those 12 men. I shall tell you what will befall you, your kind, in the last days. Are you here? Then he starts to talk about them one by one. And it gets to verse 9, I think. Um, let's go from verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. <laughs> In the last days. You are he whom your brothers. May there never be a day that I don't rise to bring you praise. Hallelujah. Let me behave myself. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Yes. Let me tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Okay. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. We know those last two that will be spoiled. 
Your father's children shall bow down before you. Nine. Judah's alliance well from the pre, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. Yes. Uh, lion. Yes, sir. Judah. Who shall rouse him? See verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of his people. See verse 11 please. See verse 11. See verse 11. Mind blowing. See verse 11. Binding his donkeys to the vine and his donkeys colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. So you see type and shadows foreshadowing Jesus from Jacob's declaration to his sons. But we miss it because we don't pay attention when he says, I shall tell you what shall befall you in the last days. So Judah would have died and never had anything to do with donkeys. Judah would have died and his brothers never gathered to sing his praise. He would have gathered and nobody would have seen him as a lion crouching. And you would have thought that Jacob did not know what he was saying. Until you see us looking at the lion of the tribe of Judah who looked like a lamb that he was slain. The root of Jesse, the seed of David. And we gather in the midst of the congregation and he leads us to give God praise. And then you see that these were those last days. Genesis 49. It's right there, foreshadowed. Right there. John 18, 36. Did he understand it? They expected something else. John 18, 36. Now, see Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants will fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, my kingdom is not from here. Let me talk about this donkey a little bit. In Jewish times, the donkey was highly valued as a beast of burden. It was generally used to do the kind of hard work that people could not do themselves. Matthew 20, 28. Some of you are getting it. Beast of burden. Valued. Deployed to do the kind of work that we cannot do ourselves. Now, see him speaking just before he would ride the donkey in the next chapter. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Luke twenty two twenty seven. 27. Are you in class? <laughs> Luke twenty two twenty seven. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet, I am among you, not as one who sits at the table, but as the one who serves. So he comes on a donkey. Showing them this thing is a beast of burden. Comes to do works that you cannot do. Showing you who I am. I come to do works you cannot do. 
Are you here? The presence of donkeys also highlights the custom among the Jews. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll find, oh my God, I love studying God's word. You read through the Old Testament, you'll find that donkeys, whenever there was an issue and somebody needed to be appeased or a price needed to be paid or a ransom needed to be paid, they would load donkeys with gifts as gifts and send ahead to go and appease or pay the price for something. It starts with Esau. Jacob has gone away and has prospered. He's coming back. Esau is in Edom. Esau hears that Jacob is coming back and plans an attack. Jacob, being the smart guy, understands that there's going to be a problem with Esau because now he understands or feels like I stole this thing, so I need to make peace with him. I need to appease him. I need to send a sacrifice ahead to speak for me so I don't fall into his condemnation. And what does he send? Donkeys loaded with gifts ahead to speak for me david is chasing being chased around by east by saul mighty men gather unto him he becomes a force to be reckoned with and he meets this random foolish man by the name of nabal who insults him and david swears he's going to obliterate the guy and his kind and the guy has a lovely wife by the name of abigail who understands that this guy is pissed off and I need to atone for my household. How does she atone? She gathers donkeys and loads them with gifts. In fact, in the specificity of her case, bread. Signifying life. Sustenance. Sends donkeys. Jesus is coming. The wrath of God is against man for sin. He's coming into the city in Jerusalem, being carried by a donkey. Ahead. As the propitiation, as the atonement, as the sacrificial offering for our sins so that God doesn't give us what we deserve. The same way that Abigail was hoping David doesn't give Nabal what he deserves. The same way that Jacob was hoping that Esau would not give him and his family what they deserve. It's not just Bible stories. But the Jews didn't understand. It was prophesied. It was there, right there, all through the scriptures. But they missed it because they were looking for something else. The way the church today has missed the thrust of the gospel because we're chasing something else. And what has been given to us is right in front of us and we can't see it for what it is. So we're distracted and chasing other things. His disciples still didn't understand his method. Let me show you Matthew 16 as I try to find where to close. They're looking for kingdom, looking for heaven. We're dealing with the problem. Let's remove the problem first. Once we deal with the problem, you can see what the solution is. Matthew 16, 21. Am I, am I, am I in Christ's experience? Yes, sir. Okay. Matthew 16, 21 through to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed. He began to show his disciples. Are you here? Yes, sir. Began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. 
he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and he must be killed and be raised on the third day it should not have been anything that took the disciples by surprise he began, he didn't just show them, he began to. In other words, his emphasis from that time changed and focused on these things. It wasn't a one-off occasion. He began to. How does the TPT put this? Fantastic. From then on, pay attention to nomenclature when you read. Pay attention to these things. Very important. Don't miss details. From then on, Jesus began to clearly revealed to his disciples that he was destined to go to Jerusalem and to suffer injustice from the elders, leading priests and religious scholars. He also explained that he would be killed and three days later be raised to life again. So if I were Peter, having heard this and seen them and the guy never gets so many, I'll be praying in tongues or whatever I can say and be smiling because I know that when this Jesus guy is actually real because what he told us is happening before our very eyes. His own disciples struggled with his method why does your method include dying what kind of method is that what kind of method is that see verse 22 16 22 <laughs> peter took him aside to correct him privately <laughs> sounds like peter right rabbi rabbi may no be say i won't embarrass you <laughs> show show face <laughs> show face I know you are rabbi but you know I'm, I'm even older than you that's how I don't want to embarrass you you know <laughs> yeah. so this is hurting you only 33 come <laughs> let me teach you life put, put it put it in the message let's see it Put it in message, verse 22. Peter took him in hand. Protesting. Impossible, master. God forbid. <laughs> that can never be. How does Amplified put this? 22. Peter took him aside to speak to him privately and began to reprimand him. Saying, may God forbid. See? To never happen to you. See how much messianic prophecies existed in their scriptures. And then the person himself is taking time to show you. I will go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, not Jericho, not Bethany, not Jerusalem. I will suffer injustice in the hand of the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and I will be killed. I will be killed. I will be killed. And on the third day, I will rise. And Peter said, God forbid. Verse 23. Matthew 16, 23. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get out of my way, you Satan adversary. You are an offense to me. Because your thoughts are only filled with man's viewpoints, not with the ways of God. They didn't understand his method. You came to restore kingdom and you are dying. And you should be living, shining, taking over. Getting bigger every day. Saying <laughs> dying and resurrecting. 
That's why they tried to want to make him king because he gave them bread. Like I told you the other day. But I wrote here, the natural, their natural needs and our natural needs are secondary. The kingdom of God is not in plenty. It's not in meat and drink. God is not good to us because our bills were paid. Romans 14, 17. God was not good to us because our bills are paid. God is not good to us because we, our waste pain was healed. It's not good to us because our scholarship application went through. Or because we got a job. Or because we are going to England. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Old King James says meat and bread. And drink. But it is righteousness and peace and joy. And the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God is not. Go back to New King James. Let me show you something. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. Not the kingdom of God is not in eating. In other words, eating and drinking are not the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is righteousness. Not the kingdom of God is in righteousness. The kingdom of God is so where you see the manifestation or the imputation of righteousness, what has come there? The kingdom. So people can be eating and drinking and there is no coming of the kingdom. But here's how you will know and identify the kingdom. Righteousness. The kingdom of God is not in righteousness. The kingdom of God is righteousness. Peace. Between us and God is our peace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God and joy in the Holy Ghost. So we have to rejoice always. And again, I say to you, rejoice. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost, fruits of the Spirit, manifestation of the Spirit. is evident that the Spirit of God is in men. And the Spirit of God that is in men is the Spirit of Christ. Who is the image of God and who is the kingdom of God. So when you see manifestations of the fruit of the spirit, you know that the kingdom has come. I will try it again. I will try it again. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. But is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. These are gifts of the spirit that Galatians 5 in 22 captures as coming from the spirit or as things that you will see in a believer in whom dwells the spirit. Right? The Holy Ghost is the spirit of God. The Holy Ghost is the spirit of Christ. Again, for those of us who are still arguing whether Christ or not is God, well, think about the fact that it's one spirit. It's not that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God and then the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Ghost who is the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. And they are always used interchangeably. Romans says in chapter 8 and verse 9 or 10, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. Galatians 4, 6 and says, God has sent forth his sons, his spirit, spirit of his son. Because you are sons, he has sent forth the spirit of his son. 
Who is the spirit of his son? The Holy Spirit. Who is the spirit of who? God. Because God is spirit. John 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, God is spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I think verse 17 or so, the Lord is that spirit. One spirit. Are you here? The spirit of God is the spirit of Jesus, is the spirit of the Lord, is the spirit of the Son. Same spirit. Make sense? The spirit of the Son is who? The spirit of who? Jesus. Jesus is who? The image of God. Jesus is the kingdom of God. Jesus is for us righteousness because it is in him that we are righteous. God made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Are you here? So if the kingdom of God is righteousness and righteousness is where? In Christ Jesus. If the kingdom of God is peace and our peace is with the Father through who? Christ Jesus. And it is also the fruit of the Spirit. For the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace. And the kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Ghost. Joy which is also fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of God bringing forth this fruit because the Spirit of God is where? Inside of you. He sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. Galatians 4, 6. Are you here? The spirit that is sent forth into your heart is the spirit of who? His son. What's the name of his son? So how is Christ in you? By the spirit. Because his spirit is in you. If his spirit is in you, that means he is in you and he is the image of God and he is the kingdom of God. Therefore, the gift of the fruit of the spirit manifesting in you are showing what? The kingdom of God has come in you. The kingdom of God is righteousness. How do we get that? By imputation of the indwelling of the spirit of Jesus in us. The kingdom of God is peace. How do we get that? By the spirit. The fruit of the spirit. The spirit of Jesus. Jesus living in us. The kingdom of God is joy. How do we get that? The Holy Spirit. Who is he? The spirit of Jesus. That is how Jesus lives in us. So once we are manifesting. That's why I said kingdom gospel into you. is kingdom out of you. Once you are manifesting the fruit of the Holy Ghost, that is you, L-I-V-I-N-G, the kingdom. The kingdom is, not in. The kingdom is righteousness. The kingdom is peace. The kingdom is joy in the Holy Ghost. Once a believer gets to that place where you are swimming in the manifestations of the spirit, living in the supernatural like it is your new natural. Guess what you have stepped into? The kingdom. The system of God. The fullness of God's will as captured in Christ. That's the end result of the gospel. That by the spirit of God you get to the point where God's way is your way. 
God's will is your will. Then all the consciousness series begin to line up for you. By the time you're living your life fully conscious of these consciousnesses, peace consciousness, rest consciousness, faith consciousness, grace consciousness, word consciousness, church consciousness, righteousness consciousness, that is you adopting and therefore adapting to the system of God. In other words, the kingdom. So what's the kingdom of God? That everything on earth aligns to his way. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when an earthly man aligns to the spirit of heaven, the kingdom on earth is restored. Not when man makes it to heaven. But when man on earth becomes as heaven. On earth. You are on earth conscious of the heavenly. You are on earth having conversations from heaven. Because that's where your citizenship is from. The word conversation is the same word citizenship in Philippians 3.20. The same word. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Other translations say our conversation. Or our communication, our transaction is from heaven. Check other translations. We are a colony of heaven and earth. Wow. As we cling tightly. Yes, give me some more. Right. Our conversation is in heaven. It's the same word. Same word translated citizenship. It's the same word translated conversation. Our conversation is in heaven. Our, our communication line is of heaven. That's the restoration of what was lost. What was tampered when we fell. So physical needs are met, but that is not why Jesus came. He came so that by dealing with sin and death, he would restore access and restore the kingdom. Are you here? And because he's the image of the invisible God, we've established that many times. He is the kingdom. And because he is the kingdom, that is why the government is upon his shoulder. You can't rule him. He rules. And if we are in him, they can't rule us. We rule. That's when the church becomes the church. You can't rule him. He rules. If we're in him, in him as the stem of dominion, they, the world, can't rule us. We rule. That's the, that's the divine order. Do you understand what I just said? Because he's the kingdom. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. You see that clearly. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. His name will be called. The name of this child that is born, this son that is given, will be called Mighty God. The name of this child that is born and this son that is given will be called Everlasting Father. Try and explain it however you want. Prince of Peace. Seven. Of the increase of his government and peace. Not war. There will be no end upon the throne of David and, or which is to say, over his kingdom 
to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. So from the time that Jesus comes, the kingdom of God kicked in again on the earth until he returns. So the difference between us and the kingdom of God on earth we're supposed to be living in is our alignment. Our yieldedness to the leading of the spirit of God. Our yieldedness to the instructions of his word are the difference between us and his kingdom. Because if you're flaunting the rules of this kingdom, it means you're living by the rules of another kingdom. If the word of God stipulates something, the word of God rightly divided in the light of Christ, stipulates something that you do not abide by, you are operating by the rules of engagement of another kingdom. And that's the difference between you and the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? But the, king, the government is upon his shoulder of the increase of his government and kingdom and peace shall be no end from that time even forevermore. Because he is the kingdom. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom. Same prayer. For thine is the kingdom. Which is to say the power which is to say the glory forever. Thy kingdom come, for thine is the kingdom. Did you see? For thine is the kingdom. What is this all about? The kingdom. He gave eternal life for what purpose? The kingdom. And we'll continue this next week. I'll show you how when he died, the same disciples that he prepared believed and propagated that it was all over. Same guys. Because they still did not discern the kingdom. And you see how this carried over to when they started doing ministry. You see why some of them struggled to preach what they were preaching before the cross. Because you see, Peter's first message was not Peter's first message. It was his first spirit-filled message. But he still had trappings of what they used to preach when they went out two by two as the twelve. And two by two as the seventy. So you're preaching in repentance after the Holy Ghost has been given. And they will not end up in understanding how that appeared to now be two Gospels. And how people are not saying that Paul's Gospel is different from Jesus' Gospel, which is different from Peter's Gospel. But it's the Gospel with one ending view. Is anybody learning anything? Yeah. And so we'll continue next week, if that's okay. And just keep laying it Step by step, 
until we understand the complete concept of the kingdom in relation to the gospel and therefore the finished work of Christ. Because we cannot have our sins forgiven and we're still secondary, if not tertiary, in the earth. Something's wrong. You're saved. Jesus paid all that price, restored you to live a normal human life in which you are still suffering while waiting for one heaven. Mm. We are the kingdom now. We are. The kingdom of God is in us. And therefore the kingdom of God is us. So we do the kingdom. We think the kingdom. We act the kingdom. We talk the kingdom. We walk the kingdom. We believe the kingdom. For his is the kingdom. And because it is his and we are from him, ours is the kingdom. Because his kingdom profits him nothing. That's why he's king of kings. Let me translate king of kings for you. God is king of pav. Do you understand? He's king of king pav. Because I'm royalty. And what is my father's through Jesus is mine. And that is not considering it robbery. To be equal with Christ. It's not robbery. What is Christ is mine. I'm not the one that appointed myself joint heirs. I was born to meet the fact that I have been made joint heirs if I believed. It's not my fault. You can't blame it on me. So if I'm a king, and my father's king of kings, then what is his is mine. And I will live like it now. I will enjoy supplies like it now. Because unto us have been given the keys to the kingdom. Well, that's it for today's teaching. We trust it has been worth your time. For more of these messages from our stables, kindly subscribe to our teaching podcast at www.thebasileacommission.podbean.com or via the Podbean app on your mobile device. For inquiries and further information, kindly send us an email to info at thebasileacommission.org or find us on social media with the handles at the truth simply put or at while the church. You can also send us an SMS, call us, or connect with us via WhatsApp on plus 234-70-881-8864. Finally, if you would like to give to support the work that we do, kindly follow the Patreon link in our podcast or contact our office for details. Thank you.